I, I was struck by the real power that China has amassed, making sure that any movie that Hollywood puts out is in some ways tacitly approved by, by Chinese censors. It's, it's really co-opted the incredible power of the American film. My guest today is Eric Schwartzel. Eric covers the film industry in the Wall Street Journal's Los Angeles Bureau. His latest book is Red Carpet, Hollywood, China, and the Global Battle for Cultural Supremacy. His book details the surprising role of the movie business in the high-stakes contest between the U.S. and China. I recently sat down with Eric, and we talked about how the movie industry is the latest battleground in the tense and complex rivalry between these two world superpowers. All right, Eric, thanks so much for coming on the show. I greatly appreciate it. And folks, the name of the book is Red Carpet, Hollywood, China, and the Global Battle for Culture Supremacy. Eric, you wrote a fantastic book. I really, really mm. enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. It was very fun to write, I have to say. This is your first book, right? It is, yes. Wow, really good stuff. And you did a lot of research on this, man. You were flying all over the world based on where you were reading in the book. I did. I wanted to, from the start, I wanted to get out of Los Angeles as much as possible. I thought the way for this book to be as interesting as possible was be to travel. And I thought it served as an opportunity to introduce a lot of readers to what life is like in China, what it's like to, to travel there, what it's like to report there. And then I knew from the start that I also wanted to include a significant section on Africa. So there's a, there's a final chapter in the book that takes place entirely in Kenya. So I knew, uh, and it's always sort of been my approach to reporting too. I've always been someone who, if I can get on a plane and go somewhere in person, I try to. I mean, you can you can read as many books as you want and you can do as many interviews over the phone, but one hour on the ground can be as enlightening as any of that. Yeah, 100%, 100%. All right, I'll tell you what I liked about your book. There was a lot of stuff I had no idea about and it really is chilling. Really is, uh, it, it, We'll get into it, but it really some scary stuff you bring up. So I want to start, because you have so many different areas in this book that, uh, first of all, why don't you share with us why you wrote this book? Why did you feel compelled to write this book as your first one? Yeah, no, I, I've been covering the film industry for the Wall Street Journal since 2013. Um, and I moved to Los Angeles to take that job. I covered gas drilling and fracking in Pennsylvania before oh, that, actually. And uh, so I, I moved to Los Angeles. I was I was hired by the journal to be something of a set of fresh eyes on on the job. I, I don't know how you cannot have fresh eyes covering covering <laughs> fracking and then going to Hollywood. You know, fresh eyes is one way to put it. I'd say you know a lot of naivete is another. Um, but I uh, I started to see China everywhere I looked. I mean, you started to see it in casting decisions in financing arrangements. I mean, everyone knew that China was going to be the next round of what they call dumb money, the money that flows into Hollywood so that, you know, financiers have a chance to go to premieres and, and feel like they have a little bit of stardust in their life. Mm -hmm. But I also always suspected that there was something else going on there, that it was, it was more than just a financial arrangement, that there was an inherently political story here too. And, and it only took a couple of years, you know, in 2016, 2017, when that global contrast really formed between China and the West, that I thought we could really use the movies as something of a 
frankly, like a proxy for the China-U.S. relationship writ large. And um, and so very quickly, I thought there's enough, certainly enough here for a book. And to your to your point about how chilling it can be, I also thought it was a story not just about the economics of Hollywood and the geopolitics of the situation, but it was also a question of values and America's place in the world and what has happened to America's presence around the world just in the last 20 or 30 yeah, years. Yeah. You know what? I was thinking of so many ways I wanted to start our conversation about your book. I want to start, forget what I said earlier. I want to start with uh, Nazi Germany, uh, 1930s. Mm. Uh, what a, the, one of the biggest areas, uh, one of the biggest markets for the movie industry at the time, uh, Hollywood, was Germany. Right? They, they consume movies. Right. In, in fact, uh, uh, Goebbels was uh, the um, the Nazi um, propaganda minister. He he loved movies, movie director, really immersed in movies. Share with us what happened at the time. And it's interesting because Hollywood, most of the major studios were run by Jews, and they knew what the Nazis were doing. Yet still, the market the the market was too big a market to disregard or overlook. Could you just walk us through what happened in terms of how the influence of Nazi Germany? impact of the movie industry, and then we'll fast forward it to today with China. Yeah, this was this was a parallel that I, I draw in the book and, and I draw it carefully, but I think that there are some undeniable similarities in the dynamic here. So before the US entered World War II in the 1930s, as you said, Germany was a massive foreign market. This was something, Charles, that actually surprised me is I had thought that Hollywood's global footprint was a relatively new phenomenon, but it turns out that Hollywood has been a global industry since its start, really. I mean, it was all, it was shipping movies overseas almost as soon as they were being produced in, uh, in Los Angeles. And Germany was a massive market. And it had a, as when Hitler came to power, he instituted a system that has some remarkable similarities to how China operates today. So for instance, uh, movies had to be approved for release before they could be shown in German theaters. So any movie that disparaged the Germans or portrayed their presence in what was then known as the Great War in a way that they that they disagreed with or had add values or a, a perspective that they thought was was wrong. I mean, it even went so far as to banning Tarzan movies because it looked like too much racial commingling for the Nazi eugenicists. So it it went from the political to the cosmetic in terms of what might what the German authorities might reject. Now, if you're running a Hollywood studio, you want to get into those markets. And so you might change the movies. You might agree to edits. You might agree not to make certain movies in order to keep in in the good graces of the Nazi party. And this did happen throughout the 1930s. And and it's interesting because the system that the the Nazis had in place is very similar to the one in, in China today. For instance, there's an approval process that the studios have to go through. There are certain themes, images, issues that they know they cannot touch for fear of angering the authorities. And we've also seen, as the Nazis did, punitive measures taken against studios that don't follow the rules. And so in in Nazi Germany, for instance, if, if a studio made or released a film that the Nazis didn't like, they might not let 
any of that studio's movies other, other they might not let any of the studio's other movies into theaters china has done the same thing similarly and this is another critical difference oftentimes when studios censor films they're censoring films for that market so saudi arabia censors a lot of movies but they're only censoring things for saudi audiences that's what they're concerned about china today and germany in the 30s wanted to make sure that audiences everywhere watched their approved version of a film they understood the incredible commercial power of the hollywood movie and this is why China is not just concerned about movies that it disapproves of showing in China. It's concerned about movies it disapproves of showing anywhere because it doesn't want audiences anywhere to ingest an image or a theme that it doesn't agree with. Right. And the Nazis did the same thing. Yeah. And even to the extent uh, when I was reading your book that the major studios even preempted what the Nazi uh, approval process was where they were self-censoring. Right. I mean, this 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 happens quite quickly, right? You you it doesn't take long to know, hey, this is something that the that the authorities are going to disagree with, so we're going to just take it out of the movie altogether. I mean, in the case of of Germany in the 30s, some studios would even go so far as to remove the names of Jews involved in the film from the credits preemptively. Right. Um, and 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 in Hollywood today, I mean, it's gotten to the point, Charles, where I think most problematic issues with a film are removed at the script stage because any executive working here for more than a couple of years has ingested what the CCP is going to take issue with. Right. So what was it or is uh, this magic, this Hollywood magic that the Nazis were fearful of and now today China is? What are, the, what are they so scared of? We go to movies today, uh, watch them on TV or watch them. We don't, you know, we're Americans, we're skeptical, we don't take everything verbatim and we don't take everything as gospel and, you know, we're skeptics. And But it's a totally different set of eyes that the Nazis and now the Chinese are viewing movies. Could you just share with us, what are they seeing that we're just not getting? You know, I think it's, um, first of all, I mean, I think the movies are undisputably the most popular form of soft power that america has had over the last well when, when you years. say soft power explain soft power is the is the political science concept of that that a, a country that is trying to win friends and influence people abroad can do more than just will them into alliances through military might or through economic coercion but through what is known as the softer power right the the idea of having something of a gravitational pull toward a culture by celebrating its culture, celebrating its history, celebrating its heroes. Um, one of my favorite quotes is um, describes America in the 20th century as becoming quote, an empire by invitation. Mm. This idea that, that America, especially after world war II was able to use the movies, use um, the education system, use all sorts of elements of the American firmament to draw people toward 
toward this country, whether it was by looking cooler than everyone else, whether it was by extolling the virtues of democracy or, or capitalism. And, and the movies did that better than just about anything. And, and one of the other interesting parallels between, as you, you mentioned, uh, Goebbels in, in Germany and, and some of the authorities in China today, is they've always tried to crack the code of how do you make propaganda, propaganda films that don't feel like propaganda. Right. So, um, for instance, uh, in the 1940s, uh, Joseph Goebbels would watch the movie Mrs. Miniver, which was uh, a movie that kind of inherently rallied support for for the uh, the Western alliance in um, in World War Two. And he'd say, you know, it's so odd. We're watching this movie. It never mentions the enemy. It never even mentions the war. And yet somehow it is conveying this this emotion. It's winning hearts and minds. Right. And there's a story in the book that I love that um, you remember the um, the Mel Gibson movie, The Patriot. Mm-hmm. Um, about the uh, the Revolutionary War, uh, authorities in China requested a copy so they could watch it and figure out how to make quote a good propaganda yeah, film yeah, yeah. because so much so many of their movies that are about the virtues of China they can just really feel like medicine you know it, it can feel like sitting through a history lesson or a really didactic uh, documentary in some cases you know Hollywood seems to have somehow cracked the code to to do America's bidding in a way that rarely feels like it's doing America's bidding. Right. If you're watching a Rocky movie, for example, when Rocky fought Drago and Rocky IV against the Russians, uh, I remember when I watched that movie, uh, when I was watching it at a theater in Brooklyn, uh, everyone was standing up and cheering. And when they mentioned Drago, the Russian national anthem played, they were booing and throwing things at the screen, and you felt great when you walked out, you know, with the American flag and all. Uh, so now that brings us also, uh, fast forward now, to Top Gun. Right, so Top mm-hmm. Gun came out first, and I believe it was 86? Yes. Okay, 86 was a different world, especially in China. So uh, uh, at the time, uh, one thing that you pointed out was, uh, um, um, what's his name? Um, what can I think of his name? Tom Cruise. His jacket, yep. his jacket had a flag, a Taiwanese flag. Now, 30 some odd years later, 36 years later, they're remaking the movie. And there's Chinese, we got to get to the Chinese market because this market, as you mentioned in the book, is now in the hundreds of millions of dollars. They're factoring this. Their accounts are factoring in releases in China. So this is not just an ancillary uh, line item or small. This is a big issue when they come to make a movie. So now here, I think you could see it for a nanosecond, the jacket with barely the a hint of the Taiwanese flag. That's right. That's right. You can. I mean, blink and you miss it. But but you're right. The story of the two Top Guns kind of tells you everything you need to know about Hollywood and China. As you said, I mean, is there a better emblem of 1980s Cold War cinema than than Top Gun? I mean, talk about standing up and cheering and 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 the the original film led to a an increase in enlistments. You know, it, it did everything that we were saying earlier in terms of being an effective entertaining propaganda film. And then when the new one was being released, as you said, something very big had happened in the intervening 30 years or so, which was that China had gone from an entirely closed off market, a place that Hollywood never gave any thought to, to um, the second largest box office market in the world on its way to becoming the first. And so, but in order to access 
that revenue in order to access those ticket sales you have to have the movie approved for release by uh censors who were operate out of, the, out of the ministry of propaganda and so it was um you know almost something of a no-brainer that the flag that you mentioned on the back of tom cruise's jacket had to go now something that but something's interesting so i think that's what's happened between 1986 and 2019 which is when we noticed that the flag had disappeared but something else has in interestingly happened between 2019 and 2022 which is that the u.s china relationship has grown more fraught by the day and american consumers and american politicians are increasingly calling out Western businesses who are acquiescing to Chinese authorities. And so it seems as though in the intervening years, the studio behind Top Gun, Paramount, decided, you know, we really risk alienating a lot of Americans if we take this flag out of the movie. Is it worth alienating those Americans to access a Chinese market that is in it, growing more inaccessible by the day? And it appears as though they decided we would rather keep Americans on our side than have a better shot of getting into China. And that is something that is a relatively recent development until until I'd say Top Gun and maybe a couple other more recent examples. The studios were always deciding China was worth it. And and over the past two years, I think COVID had a lot to do with this over the last two years. What was what was once something of a fringe issue, which is Western businesses conceding to Chinese authorities, is becoming more and more mainstream. OK, so now let's bracket and then we'll go into the 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 impact that China has had and why uh, on, on the American uh, um, uh, American movies and, and the and the uh, and the uh, studios. Uh, Red Dawn, Red Dawn, nineteen eighty four. I remember that movie. That was a real rah rah movie. Uh, the Chinese invade the United States, right? No, the uh, the Soviets. <laughs> Soviets. I'm sorry. Soviets fly in. I remember watching that. They divide the country. They're coming in from Mexico. Uh, the Wolverines. They fight back. Now that was nineteen eighty four. Real popular movie at the time. And I don't know how popular it was, but I remember watching it. You know, the young kids were fighting against, uh, and then our biggest enemy then was the USSR. Now, fast forward, I think it was to 2012 or so, uh, uh, yep. a remake of Red Dawn. And who's the enemy this time? Well, it was originally supposed to be China. Okay. When they greenlit the film, they were going to have it be a Chinese invasion of the U.S. Okay, which, 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 you know, is, 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 probably, is probable they're a superpower. It's yep. not like if you're going to have... Uh, I don't know, Mexico invade the United States, that's not believable. But you have China invade, that sounds, you know, like the Soviet Union did in 1984 when Red Dawn came out. So they shoot the movie, they have China invade, and everything, movie's made, finished, done. What happens next? Well, China hears about it. And articles start appearing in Chinese state media saying that if MGM, which was the studio behind the new Red Dawn, if MGM released the film and portrayed China as the antagonist like that, that there would be problems. And, and suddenly a dynamic took shape. I'm so glad we started with the example of 1930s Germany because a dynamic took shape that was very similar to, to the 1930s dynamic because MGM was not making this new Red Dawn movie with 
China in mind. It was not one of the one of the movies that they were going to send to Chinese theaters. And, and, and let me just interject um, for a second from your book. This is what I learned. Chinese market wasn't that big a market. They didn't let too many films in at the time. There was a limitation to how right. much money they can make. So it really wasn't so much the money. And it, I don't think Red Dawn was going to be shown in China. Exactly. Right? It was an American exactly. movie. Right, exactly, Charles. But by but by making it at all, MGM risked seeing all of its other movies denied access to the Chinese market, which, as I said, is a, is a playbook that we also saw in, in 1930s right. Germany, sort of punish a company wherever you can. Right. And so MGM did something pretty drastic. They took the completed film and they sent it to a company here, not far from my house, actually, um, that specialized in what they call hidden effects. And hidden effects are the very unglamorous side of special effects. So, you know, special effects, we usually think of car crashes and superheroes and things. These are the folks who go in and make sure that you can't see, you know, any pubic hair in the nude scene right. or, you know, re remove the boom mic from floating above the shot. You know, these are, this is, this is the kind of work they do, but I have to say it's pretty critical work. You know, we don't want to see movies. We, we go to the movies for a certain kind of fantasy and these, that's what these, right. these, People do. But they, here they are. They get a completed film about a Chinese invasion of the U.S. And they're told you need to remove all references to China from this movie. So every flag, every line of dialogue, every um, medal on a military officer's uniform that signals China has to be removed. And instead, this new Red Dawn is re-edited into a story about a North Korean Invasion so had, of the if U.S. If had Asians, they might as well stay with Asians, right? So, uh, I mean, I know. I mean, I know. actually have thought about that. I mean, what are those actors thinking, right? You know, that your your cast is one nationality, yeah, and then you just sort of switched in editing. Yeah, they didn't care. And 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 obviously, when the movie came out, everyone was very quick to point out this doesn't make any sense. Yeah, I don't think and, even the movie. They, one of the actors actually says, uh, "Who was that? Um, Thor? What was his name? Uh, Chris?" Uh, yeah, one of the Hemsworth brothers. Yeah. He says. Yeah, there's this line of dialogue. He says, North Korea, it doesn't make any sense. And I've always thought that was the screenwriters trying to sort of signal right. like, hey, we know this is not this is not the kind of this is not the movie we wrote. And but what was so fascinating is that that story of of the re-editing, I, I did not uncover that for the book. It was reported on at the time in 2012. There were stories about this this sort of drastic measure being taken. But what I was so fascinated, what I found, what I found quite um, revealing was the fact that it wasn't seen as a big deal. It was seen as something, you know, a, a little bit of a fluke, something you some weird thing you did for China and people kind of moved on. It wasn't until years later when the U.S. and China were locked in, in the rivalry that I think they're in today that you started to see people say, oh, you know what, in retrospect, those kinds of concessions were fueling China's rise oh, yeah. in a way that we weren't, we didn't appreciate at the time. When I, was, when I was reading your book, and by the way, folks, the book is an outstanding book. If this is your first book, man, I can't wait to read your second. You really, you really write well. And to the point where oh, thank I, you. every chapter when, you know, my wife would call me for dinner or something, I'd stop. I'd say, wow, well, I got to get back to this book. You know, it's some books you like you know, struggle to get back to. This was like, I got to see what happens next. And you jump. Oh, that's, that's a wonderful endorsement. You know, Thank you. And you jump around from time points, which, uh, which was really interesting. Uh, but, um, but something that was uh, really amazing was 
when I kept reading the book, it really reminded me of the kid's story, if you give a mouse a cookie, and mm. also want a glass of milk. The Chinese, they started with small concessions, and they kept upping the, upping the ante, uh, where it got to the point where the, uh, the studios were being preemptive and being above and beyond the Chinese censors. Many things the Chinese censors didn't even ask for, they went ahead and did because that Chinese market of, was it 50,000 uh, theaters or so? It's now about 75,000. Just, just, um, just think of that number, you know, and, and, and yeah. the box office receipts they're talking about, this is a couple of dollars a, a, a ticket, right? A dollar fifty, two dollars a ticket. Uh, uh, so when you're talking the, you know, 500 million, 300 million, think of how many millions and millions of people are seeing these movies from just not from a financial point, from a propaganda point. Oh, absolutely. And, and I also think, you know, one of the things that I was fascinated to learn about were what was happening here in the U.S. that drove these studios into China. You know, one thing that's happened over the past decade or so is that movies have gotten so much more expensive. All of the studios now are trying to make these giant blockbusters. You know, we had three this weekend at the box office uh, or, you know, we had um, Jurassic World. We had uh, Doctor Strange. We've got Top Gun. There are a bunch of movies coming out this summer that are sort sort of at a similar scale. These movies are so expensive that sometimes, Charles, accessing that Chinese market is the difference between profit and right. loss. And, and so obviously you're not going to do anything that will remotely jeopardize not getting into that, in, into that market. Because, you know, when you send a movie into to Beijing, it, when they, when they don't take it, you very rarely get a memo saying why. So you have to, you, and you can see the genius of the system in a way you have to then intuit and guess and, and then everyone sort of lowers their bar of risk uh, so that they can have the best shot. Right. So, so it became with China, and I just want uh, you know, our listeners to really appreciate this, uh, the way China is crafting their message and of what kind of country they are, and more importantly, what they're suppressing, what they're not letting or whitewashing for example, the three T's, right? You can't talk about Tiananmen Square, can't talk about Tibet, and you can't talk about Taiwan, right? And so, for example, right. you bring up in the book of, um, of Richard Gere, who is very vocal and friendly with the Dalai Lama and free Tibet and all that, and the guy can't find work. That's right. He's radioactive. And, and you know, obviously, we, we remember he was a huge star in the 90s. And he continued to work through the early 2000s. But his last studio film was in 2009, mm. which was a very important year because it was the year that Avatar came out. And Avatar made $200 million at the Chinese box office. And that was an amount of money, Charles, that in 2009 was considered almost a mathematical impossibility. You did because the market was so underscreened at the moment and tickets were so mm -hmm. cheap relative to, to U.S. Right prices that 200 million dollars really served as something of a wake-up call for the entire industry and and, 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 and the way they got the 200 million the way you wrote is people saw it three four five times right for some people it was the first movie they saw in theaters it was the it was certainly for for a lot of chinese moviegoers the first movie they saw in 3d um and so and and also the entertainment market back then not nearly as saturated with streaming options and things as, as we see now. So you mm -hmm. can understand how it would prove to be so, 
so popular. However, I mean, I mean, I think it's critical that that is the year Richard Gere stops getting cast in major studio films because every casting agent in town knows that if he shows up on screen, chances are Chinese authorities aren't going to let it into their theaters. And not, and not only that movie, but every movie the studio has, everything from Disney, for example, they're all gone. It could be a, it could be, it could be that drastic. You're right. And, and, you know, when I set out to write this book, I had heard speculation that that was the case. And, and then I would talk to people and they'd say, no, you know, that's overstating it. Richard, you know, no, it's very hard to find any man of Richard Gere's age starring in big movies these days and, and so on. But I talked to a, um, an executive at Warner brothers who said, you know, it wasn't like there was a blacklist that went around saying don't hire Richard Gere. But the question that, that I mean, think about it, the, the the conversation always went something like, well, do we really need him? Because if you can call someone else and you're not going to really lose that much, like why, why adopt the risk? Why take the chance? Why take the chance? Right. And, um, you know, even with uh, children's movies, cartoons and um, with uh, Mulan, uh, you write all about Disney. And I think the Disney story from Michael Eisner to Bob Iger and what happened is just absolutely fascinating. You want to just take us from uh, Mulan, it was Mulan, right, uh, with uh, with um, Michael Eisner, with yet apologize. Michael Eisner, um, the big the big story that uh, that Michael Eisner got involved in was in the '90s with um, Kundin, which was oh, the yes. Martin Scorsese movie. That's right. Yes. Oh, share so share in, us with in, us. Yeah, go ahead. In 1997, and this, I opened the book with this because it's it's such it's such a case study in in what would happen. Disney uh, is releasing a Martin Scorsese movie called Kundin, which is about a young Dalai Lama. Um, it's actually a really really well done film, and this is 1997. So China hasn't joined the WTO yet. Um, it's only been letting in American movies for three years. And at the time, if a movie there made $3 million, it was considered. Yeah, but they're, they're, all, a they're, good, they're only letting in like, what was it? 13 movies a year or something? Was yeah. Some... About uh, between like 10 and 12, right. 10 and 13. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Very small number. I mean, it was not, it was not something that any studio chief was spending any time thinking about. Um, Disney, however, they, I mean, they knew that eventually this middle class was going to take shape, that there was going to be a robust market there, that maybe even eventually there might be a theme park in, in mainland China. But that was years away. And then when Kundin is released and it serves as this kind of valorization of this Chinese state enemy, the Chinese authorities make it clear that all of Disney's aspirations in the market are jeopardized by this film and disney it kind of to our point about the top gun jacket disney's in a tough spot because they know if they kill the film that martin scorsese and all of his friends in hollywood are going to accuse the company of bowing to the communist party and squelching free expression right. so they decide what they're going to do while they're back channeling with uh ccp authorities with the help i'll add of henry kissinger who they had on retainer to navigate uh, Chinese politics, um, they decide we're going to release the film so that no one can claim we didn't, but we're going to release it as quietly as possible. And they release it on, I think, like two or three screens on its first day. And it gradually expands, but it never has a national release and they don't put a lot of money into marketing it. Nonetheless, Disney is still banned from doing business in the country after it's released. 
And it's not until a year later that Michael Eisner, the CEO at the time, flies over and meets with a CCP official named Xu Rongji. And there's a transcript of this meeting that is just fantastic reading if you want to if you want to go track it down. Um, and he says to the this Communist Party official, he says, the bad news is that we made the film. The good news is that nobody saw it. And he apologizes for making this movie about the Dalai Lama. And it gets Disney back into business. And not only does Disney get back into business in China, but they become pretty in pretty short order, the most influential, powerful and lucrative studio in the market. And today they have Shanghai Disneyland. They, you know, in good times routinely get their biggest movies into the market. They're selling toys there. They're they're doing everything to seed the Chinese culture with Disney, Disney culture. Yeah. Right, right. And um, uh, just share with us, uh, why is Tibet, why is the Dalai Lama so toxic to the Chinese worldview? Well, he, since his, since his exile um, following Mao's revolution, the Dalai Lama has operated something of a government in exile um, that the Chinese authorities view as a challenge to their sovereignty. You know, so many of these issues are about what Beijing sees as its rightful borders and the the land that it is, um, you know, that it, it can justify justify having. Ta Taiwan has a similar kind of geographic importance. And, and the Dalai Lama has also, I mean, talk about soft power. I mean, he has, over the past 30 years or so, since winning the Nobel Peace Prize, functioned as maybe the most charismatic critic of the of the CCP. Um, and, and I think all of the the adoration in the West that that is now certainly tempered because of China's influence. Right. For but example, all of that Richard, adoration. Richard Gere, who linked up with the Dalai Lama, who's really ostracized, for example. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And, and many, many musicians as well um, will not perform in China because they they have shown support for the Dalai Lama. So he's something of a one man rebuke to what Beijing sees as its as its sovereign borders. Right. And, and so um, and, and, it's the, he, and, it's, and it's the apology that China demands of the insensitivity of even thinking. And I was reading some of the apologies you put in the book, what they say, what others say. Uh, we apologize for, uh, you know, even if we're insulting the Chinese people and the Chinese government. And even thinking that Taiwan or it's 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 uh, uh, 1984. It's it's thought police. It's anywhere close to thinking like that, and they're coming after you. Well, and and when when actors or directors have to go over to China now to do to do press tours, they're given these binders yeah. that run down. You know, here's what you're allowed to say. If this comes up, this is the way to address it, and so on. I think you even put in with Jackie Chan. Uh, um, um, uh, he was uh, he was not to be asked any questions. The handler seemed to be very nice, but soon as it got to the point of anything dealing with Taiwan, he was not allowed to answer. I think it was also Hong Kong. He wasn't allowed to answer also or something to that effect. Right, but, right, uh, right, yeah. right. So they're, they're they're clamping down because and they're looking and saying um, and, and cases where you had, uh, for example, that beautiful um, Chinese actress who at Cannes she was there with the American. Oh, Fan Bing Bing. Yeah, what happened to her? Share with us uh, that story. 
This is a, it's a fascinating story. And I think it's also another example of just how so much success in China now for Western business is becoming a liability. Fan Bingbing was China's arguably its biggest star. She was something like on the, on the par of like an Angelina Jolie or a Jennifer Lawrence, Julia Roberts. And um, she was cast in a universal film that came out last year or maybe earlier this year now called um, The 355 with Jessica Chastain and Penelope Cruz. And she was cast in the film. And soon after she was cast in the film, which, you know, was was a pretty savvy move on the part of the studio, because casting her in a movie is going to really boost your chances of success in, in China. After she was cast, she was um, busted for what they call yin yang contracts and and yin yang contracts are essentially tax evasion it's the idea that you know charles you um you're you're getting paid uh five hundred dollars uh to do this podcast but you report uh to the government that you're getting paid two hundred dollars two separate contracts two separate exactly and and so she became this very public example of a government crackdown on a practice that was actually quite rampant in its entertainment industry. And and I think, you know, some people read this and they say, well, she was evading her taxes. This is not necessarily something we, you know, we should just look, you know, turn the other way on. And um, but what, what was unique was just what happened to her as a result. She she disappeared from public view. For three months. And three months she's gone. For three and, months. And you said how they have the nerve to do that because they had a premiere. They had a movie coming out, right? They had a movie coming out. She just never showed up to set. She just never showed up. No one knew where she was. Um, And, uh, you know, it's interesting. I think I was one of maybe four people who saw that movie when it finally did come out. And if you watch the film, it is so obvious that they had to green screen her into the movie. You can see, you can see the visual effects that they had to pull off to make it look like she had just shown up to set as she was supposed to. Wow. Amazing. And they find her, I think it was a $127 million, which was greater than her net worth. They wanted to destroy her. Right. And what's interesting now is her career to, to try to build her career back up. She's partaking in what I, what I consider something of a, of a currency system in China's entertainment industry, which is she's now doing a lot of propaganda films, a lot of pro-government films to build up her, as I said, her political currency since she's lost so much in right. this, right. Uh, in this scandal. So if you're going to make a movie in China that you want to show in China, you can't talk about Taiwan. You can't talk about Tiananmen Square. You can't talk about Tibet. You can't make movies about ghosts. Why can't you make movies and have ghosts? So ghosts and anything that involves really the supernatural is has been a no-go zone. There's there's an aesthetic, I think, allergy in, in China sometimes to, to things that are like disturbing or um, a little gross or, or, you know, that kind of... Um, macabre element but the other thing is that ghosts are in in essence a really a spiritual being and and the ccp is overseeing what is you know what they define as an atheist country and so there's a little bit too much spirituality in that in that concept okay so no ghosts also no time travel you can't have back to the future why can't you have time travel well time travel i mean think about it it First of all, it 
allows for the idea that there is a history different than the one the government taught you. Amazing. And so it gets it gets a little problematic. What if you you know what if you have a movie set in China uh, that goes back in time to the 1950s? I mean that's a minefield in terms of what you're allowed to portray and what you're not allowed to portray. And so if there's going to be a portrayal of history, it has to be the straight and narrow version that the CCP is putting forward. And trust me, they put forward a lot. There is no shortage of movies about Chinese history at the uh, at the Chinese box office right now. Yeah, amazing. There's no uh, homosexuality, right? That doesn't exist. Uh, there's no uh, Serpico or some other movie with, uh, uh, it was very clever how you wrote in the book, how uh, the events of Serpico, how, it was Serpico, right, that got in? Yes. Yeah, share with us what happened there. Yeah, I talked to I talked to a producer who wanted to do a China, essentially a Chinese version of Serpico, and he called it I think a, he called it a metaphysical quandary because on one hand the authorities would like the story of corruption busting in in an institution, right? That is something that Xi Jinping himself has has said he's doing quite a bit of. However, you have to then allow for the fact that there was corruption in the to first place, with, right, right. <laughs> which is the problem, right? So, so where where can you set it? What can you do? I mean, this is why um, so often producers have to get creative and maybe set something in the 1980s before the current regime was in power, or maybe set something in Macau where there's a little less of a of a hold on on law and order. There's there's all these kinds of storytelling devices that function as these kind of allowances that let you kind of skirt the um, the CCP concerns. Yeah, it's it's you know I'm reading this and I'm saying, okay, ghost. I I couldn't understand um, time travel, but then you can have time travel. You know, it's it's there. That, that go, it goes to show you the depth. Uh, of how they're managing information and writing history according to the way they want it to be and not the way it is, of course, to the umpteenth extent. I mean, it's, it, and it, what's fascinating is how it all moves in such concert. And, and, and you know, we, we started this conversation talking about American soft power Chinese authorities really do view entertainment and and the images that Chinese people see as something of a spigot. And anytime the CCP wants to engender loyalty or boost patriotism, whether it's because there's a, some, a big holiday or there's a party Congress coming up, they will shut off the spigot of Western influence and instead pipe in a lot of Chinese yeah, like, like entertainment. Like the Olympics, right? Example, exactly. You know? Exactly. And then they'll and then they might loosen it again after after the event passes. You know, I want to tell you as as troubling as this book is and what's happening, there's a certain amount of um, I don't want to say admiration, a certain amount of respect. Not respect. That's even a bad word. Uh, or what would be the best of how China is managing this, and not only managing it, but is extremely successful in achieving their goals in terms of the dissemination of what they want, and also, uh, which I think was just absolutely amazing, the the, um, the way that Chinese are depicted. I think it was a flower vase. Was that the? Yes. Yeah. Share with us yeah. That. This is, um, so, so back in, I'd say starting around 2013 or 2014, 
a lot of studio chiefs, you know, rather smartly thought, well, if we're going, if, if, if China's the play, why don't we do everything we can to boost our chances of success in the Chinese market? Well, why don't we cast Chinese actors and actresses in these roles? And so in 2014, 2015, there were all these movies like X-Men and Godzilla and Transformers, where suddenly these Chinese actors and actresses were showing up out of nowhere in these bit roles, oftentimes played by actors and actresses who didn't speak English or didn't speak English well enough to act in it. But the studios, I think rather stupidly thought, if a Chinese moviegoer sees one of their actors or actresses on the poster, they're more likely to go see it. Well, Chinese audiences aren't dumb. They know when they're being pandered to. And so they'd go see these movies, whether it was X-Men or something, and they'd say, okay, that actress, actually Fan Bingbing was in one of them. She was in X-Men for one scene and her character was named Blink, which I think is really just cruel. But they, they said, you know, we come here, you tell us Fan Bingbing's in the movie, she's in it for two seconds and then she leaves. So they started calling these actresses flower vases because they were so useless to the plot that they were just sort of decorative. And, and I think it's an example of, Frankly, the, the sort of like the the Hollywood arrogance that that just the Chinese audiences would be so thrilled to have a Chinese actor or actress in a Hollywood film that they would forgive something like that. Yeah, and they would also, I remember reading that uh, the movie posters would be way out of proportion to the appearance of the of the actor. It's like you think you're going to see a movie all about her and there was she was the flower vase. You know, amazing. Exactly. And also, exactly. Yeah. You look also the arrogance, and, and you have some great pictures in your book of John Wayne back in the day pay, playing uh, Genghis Khan. You know, <laughs> here you have an American, uh, you know, big John Wayne, six four, six three, uh, swagger, cowboy, this and that, and then you you have him as an as, uh, as someone from Asia. <laughs> just, and, then, and the only other yeah, I don't think. I don't think that would happen today. No, no, the Jackie, not the Jackie Chan, the Fu Manchu uh, uh, um, stereotypes of the Chinese. It, it has gone the other way. You know, it's just uh, amazing that uh, um, to think that they could pull the wool over China's eyes and how crafty, and I say that in a complimentary way for China and their uh, propaganda arm of what they're accepting and, and how they're seeing the BS and, and, have, and whipping Hollywood into line in such a way that's just, you know... You're rewriting. You're not rewriting history. You're having history written the way China wants you to see it. Yes, exactly, exactly. And and I think what what I was struck by was, you know, it's one thing to to have movies be changed before they can be shown in Chinese theaters. I I was struck by the real power that China has amassed, making sure that any movie that Hollywood puts out is in some ways tacitly approved. Yeah. Yeah. by by Chinese censors. You know, it's it's really co-opted the incredible power of the American film. It's like you and I, are, let's say screenwriters, and we come up, oh, let's do a movie about Dalai Lama. Nope. Let's do my Tibet. Nope. Tiananmen Square. Nope. Taiwan. Nope. Ghosts. Time travel. What are we doing, right? We're never going to tell history. We're never going to tell a story where it's never going to be that uh uh, because we will never get it green lighting. We'll never sell the screen, uh, this, the uh, the rights. We'll never make the movie. And even if by chance it does, it'll never see the the light of day. And I think what to your point too, this is this is really putting Hollywood in an awkward position because 
for the first time in decades, studio chiefs run the risk of being at odds with their home government. If this, if this continues to become a, more and more of a political concern. Yeah, it'll, you know, uh, how, how do you see, you know, the, the short time that we have left, how do you see this playing out? What do you, how do you see this coming to a climax, if it does at all? Well, I think issues like the, the Top Gun Taiwan flag um, will, if they continue to happen, I think they will just get more and more oxygen each time they do, because I think Americans are starting to recognize a pattern. And, and I also think that the, the Russian invasion of Ukraine has raised really interesting questions about the role of all Western businesses to be doing business in countries that are opposed to American interests. And so if, if the China-America relationship continues to devolve and it doesn't improve, businesses are gonna be caught in the middle sooner rather than later. Um, and and if, if China is seen as being more aggressive than American authorities want it to be, a lot of businesses are gonna be called out for their their help now now what's interesting though is that an economic exodus out of china is much harder than an ex economic exodus out of russia oh 100 um yeah you know it, it would be it'd be devastating yeah. to so many of these these companies yeah look the the amount of money that american companies had in russia is no comparison to the investment uh and the commitment uh, to their bottom lines as china first of all the market is you you geez humongous and uh it, it's you know I, I just when I was reading your book I'm trying to think where's the happy medium here and there I don't think there is one when you deal with a bully uh, and money on the other side of it uh, principles or the money it's going to be a hard choice it's going to be the money for most, unless the government United States government does something about it and I don't know what they can possibly do yeah you know I have a I have a quote in the in the book from a studio executive who said to me. I do not see myself as the standard bearer of Western democracy. I'm here to make money. money. Yeah, 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 that's, that's really it. Folks, the name of the book is Red Carpet, Hollywood, China, and the Global Battle for Cultural Supremacy. I want to tell you, it's a really, really good book. Uh, Eric, you did an outstanding job. And uh, mm. do you have another book uh, idea coming out, or are you thinking one, or are you just taking a break on this? I do. I do. I, I am working on a second one um, that is going to be a political, cultural and economic history of Star Wars. Oh, interesting. Interesting. You know, I saw uh, I was looking and it, it's so that's why I love doing this podcast. I meet such great people like yourself who write really great stuff. And I think it was a couple of weeks ago. Uh, I was looking at the the uh, Saturday edition of the journal and there on the front page of the review section was a excerpt from your book. Yes. Right? Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was yeah, yeah. 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 The journal's been been a great great supporter. Um, and uh, and yeah. And it's also it's funny. You know, when I sold this book uh, in 2018, I thought I was late to the story, wow. and it just gets more wow. more and more relevant by the week. I mean, you know, this. You know, it, in recent months, it's been Tom Cruise helping me sell copies. Yeah. So I. <laughs> What's the next one going to be? Just amazing. Just amazing. Exactly. Exactly. All right. uh, Eric, thanks so much, man. Continued success to you. And, and uh, when you come out with your next book, open invitation to the show. Love to have you again. I'd love that. Thank you, Charles. All right, man. Thanks. Take care. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Charles Mizrahi Show. If you're a new listener, welcome. If you've been listening for a while, we're glad to have you back. Either way, 
We'd love to know what you think of the show. Please leave a review if you listen on Apple Podcasts. Reviews make it easier for others to find the show. You can also see the video of the interview on the Charles Mizrahi Show channel on YouTube.